She sights a bird, she chuckles, she flattens, then she crawls. She runs without the look of feet, her eyes increase to balls. Her jaws stir, twitching, hungry. Her teeth can hardly stand. She leaps, but Robin leapt the first. Ah, pussy of the sand. The hope so juicy ripening, you almost bather your tongue. When Bliss disclosed a hundred toes and fled with every one. Welcome to School of Poetry, a podcast devoted to the world of poetry, the good and the not so good. I'm Dr Ollie Turl and I'm lecturer in English here at Loughborough University and uh, I'm joined this week by two special guests to discuss the world of poetry, um, Dr Carol Bolton who is a lecturer here in the School of the Arts English and Drama at Loughborough and uh, Carol specialises in Romanticism uh, and Dr Nick Freeman who is reader in late Victorian literature and his specialism is in Victorian literature and he's a cultural historian. So thank you, Carol and Nick, for joining me. Hi, um, Carol, you. you began uh, by reading Emily Dickinson's poem, She Sights a Bird, She Chuckles. They never have titles, do they? So we always just have to, they yes. to kind of give them an honorary title using the first line. Uh, and the reason we chose this poem is that last time we uh, kind of spontaneously, really, <laughs> threw out cat poems as a... As a I think that was my fault. Uh, I mentioned Osbert, Osbert Sitwell talking about trying out your new poetry on your cat. And, um, you know, we thought, yeah, cat poems would be a good good topic for the new podcast this time. So um, here we are to discuss cat poems, and uh, we've uh, opened with Emily Dickinson. So um, what can you tell us about this poem, Carol? Um, well, I love it because it um, it just encompasses a cat's um, actions and behaviour. Um, the 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 eyes increasing to balls, you know, that sort mm. of focus on uh, a prey um, as the cat pounces, um, and her jaws twitching, hungry. You know, it's got all of the action and all of the sort of dynamic of a cat yes. about to attack its prey. So, not good for the mouse or bird or whatever it is, but um, a really good encapsulation of the character of a cat, I think. Yes, and without having to mention cat, I mean, we get. Our pussy of the sand, but she doesn't, you know, yeah, doesn't we don't have a title, yeah. a cat or whatever. Um, it's like she does a poem about snow, you know, it sifts from leaden sieves, and I don't think that mentions snow anywhere. No. But, you know, it, it, it's such a vivid description of, uh, of the subject that you just know that's what she's uh, writing about. Absolutely. And the other thing I love about Emily Dickinson's poems as well is the way in which she uses hyphens or dashes, whichever you think they are, to to um, uh, break up the words or the images. Mm. I think it's often to, to detach images, to make them stand out more se- you know, separately. And here you have sort of twitching, hungry, the flattening, the crawling, the chuckling is all split up by yes. the dashes. And I think that really gets that motion and action, um, those individual images very much... Um, into the reader's mind. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what struck me about it. Obviously, that it's a trademark, uh, so it's kind of a signature, isn't it, those dashes? Yeah. But here, yeah, it does capture that kind of rather breathless, jerking kind of, you know, movement as the cat... Get Anyone who's watched a cat, you know, when it spots you know, yeah. <laughs> some, a bird, some potential prey, flattening, and then you know, the whole the body kind of flattening, and then the eyes 
it, I mean, it strikes me, you know, the eyes increase the balls. Of course, they're already balls, but they kind of, it's almost like they're coming out, you know, and becoming almost even more spherical. Yes. Just that kind of enlarging of the cat's eyes as it focuses on the, on the bird. And then the motion of a hundred toes, because they can move so swiftly, can't they? Yeah. You can imagine, you know, the, the sort of, the speed with which a cat goes at, and, and the bliss of that uh, anticipated capture of the bird. It flees, of course, and the bird is fine in the end. So it's a happy poem in that respect. And happy for the bird, if that's the bird escaping at the yeah. end as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love it. She, she moves as well from third person, and she's using she, yes. and then it's suddenly you almost bathed your tongue. Yeah. And then she's addressing the cat there, direct, is she saying, or is that her watching it? So, yes. you know, who's she talking to there? And it, it's a very dynamic uh, portrait of a very brief happening it's a short mm. it's a short poem it's only 12 lines long it deals with something that happens in a few moments and it's very driven by by verbs yeah sights mm. chuckles flattens crawls runs in those first three lines mm. giving us this kind of almost um, like stop motion effect yeah of, of, of the cat's the cat's movement so yeah. it's a very dynamic piece of writing really makes the most of its its short lines and those breakages that are caused by the the dashes mm. and yeah uses. and some of the verbs are very surprising aren't they i mean the, the idea of a cat chuckling is yes. uh, you know yes. as you say it's a happy poem carrie you, you get this you know the, this personification oh the, you know cat chuckling that kind and glee. of high-pitched purring chirp yeah, yeah. hunting sound sense of anticipation yeah. of what's going to happen and disclosed as well is quite you know it's a very kind of formal mm. the choice of verb to describe the the, the kind of un, you know, almost like the, the the revealing of all these you know this these multiple toes as it seems you know, yes. because he's moving so quickly Disclosed is you know, a, a surprising choice of verb. Uh, the absence of a final full stop, mm. making this again a dynamic movement. The bird flees, and life continues. So it's not a kind of straightforward chronological beginning, meaning and mid, middle and end narrative. Mm. It's an incident, and obviously the next time a robin lands in the. Uh, in the garden, there'll be a repeat of it. And that wonderful thing you get a lot in, in Emily Dickinson of the um, taking an abstract notion, a feeling, an emotion, or whatever, um, and making it concrete. The idea of hopes so juicy ripening. Yeah, the idea of the anticipation, mm-hmm. the saliva building up. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. this idea. Yes, yeah, so you yeah. can feel the hope and the anticipation yes. almost drowning your. It's a, bit like, it's a bit like Smeagol singing about fish, though, in, in, in <laughs> yeah. well. juicy, juicy, sweet, juicy, sweet. Excited about the idea of dining on the, on the prey animal. A very, uh, yeah, very vivid depiction of a cat. Uh, and of course, well, lots of poets have had cats themselves. They gave them some rather odd names. Uh, T.S. Eliot had a, a, a number of cats. He called them things like uh, George Push Dragon, Noily Pratt. <laughs> Which I think is a vermouth, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Petty paws, tamper mile, and whiskers. Whiskers spelled W I S C U S. But my favourite is Thomas Hardy's cat, or one of many cats he had, um, and the best best named cat I think in all of literature, Kidley Winkum Poops. <laughs> or trot for short mm-hmm. which like we probably heard, use quite a lot <laughs> I'd like to have heard him calling his cat in wouldn't you? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Arthur Simmons who I'll be saying something about later uh, believed you should only call your cat something beginning with Z 
So he, at one point he had a cat called Zambellino, but there were a number of other Z cats. Ah, uh, yeah. Sounds again like some mm. sort of not very good TV series. Yeah, <laughs> Z cats. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Yeah, it, it has a, a ring of science fiction. Won't that at all, <laughs> but. It has a ring of science fiction about it though, as well. You know, the planets beginning with Z and so on. Cats as otherworldly, mm. and um, cats and the moon—an interesting yes. one. Um, I mean, there was W.B. Yeats's poem, mm-hmm. Cat and the Moon, Nick, which I'm, I'm, I think you brought along. Yeah, I, well, I can read I, I can read The Cat and the Moon uh, if people would like me to read it. Mm, that would uh, be say good. about it. Okay, I'll, I'll say it. You have to imagine, of course, that I have a Southern Irish accent. I've probably got the, exactly the wrong voice for this. I'm far too English, but here I am. The Cat and the Moon, W.B. Yeats. The cat went here and there, and the moon spun round like a top. And the nearest kin of the moon, the creeping cat, looked up. Black Minaloush stared at the moon. For wonder and wail as he would, the pure cold light in the sky troubled his animal blood. Minaloush runs in the grass, lifting his delicate feet. Do you dance, Minaloush? Do you dance? When two close kindred meet, what better than call a dance? Maybe the moon may learn, tired of that courtly fashion, a new dance turn. Minaloush creeps through the grass, from moonlit place to place. The sacred moon overhead has taken a new phase. Does Minaloush know that his pupils will pass from change to change, and that from round to crescent, from crescent to round they range? Minaloush creeps through the grass, alone, important and wise, and lifts to the changing moon his changing eyes. I was thinking back to Emily Dickinson when you were reading that, I was thinking, you know, there are some shared characteristics in terms of this idea of the, you know, this cat in Dickinson's poem um, acting very quickly, the, the, the rapid succession of, you know, movements... And then this idea of the cat being linked to the moon, this idea of you know constant change, inconstancy. You know, mm. cats are supposedly kind of fickle creatures, but here they're also you know mysterious. They've got this. Uh, yes, Dickin- Dickinson's giving us a kind of running commentary on an event, mm. and Yeats is drawing in some of his other obsessions, his mystical yeah. fascinations, mm. the links between cats, moons, and women. Minaloush was supposedly the cat owned by Maud Gon, his muse, mm. the occasional lover. And there's some kind of link being drawn here, I think, between Maud Gon uh, and the cat. The cat's sort of rather provocative, flirtatious, dancing, but also alone, important and wise, mm. fundamentally separate and distant. And uh, I like the way that perhaps the moon can learn something from the cat. Quite yeah. audacious uh, shift there. There's also a kind of pull of gravity, isn't there, between the moon and the cat in the way that they're connected in the poem, I think, you know, and you've got the cat's eyes and the moon. And that reminded me of the Dickinson poem again, the idea of um, eyes like balls or mm. spheres like the moon is as well. Yeah. So even though it has this element of perhaps alluding to Maud Gone, it is still very cat-like in its characteristics. Mm. And I was thinking about the idea of dancing as well. That's yeah. so important to Yeats, of course, that the, the idea of the dance. And um, 
that, that oddly that took me back to uh, Edward Lear, the album The Pussycat, you know, when they're dancing by the light of the moon at the yeah, end. Yeah, it's hand in hand, even hand though neither hand. of them has a hand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the pupil's changing, so from round to crescent, you've got, almost got there that sort of eternal nature of the moon, haven't you? Reflected yeah. in the cat's eyes as it sort of goes through its phases. Uh, and going back to what Nick said about, you know, this, this event in Dickinson poem will happen again. It's like a yeah. cycle. It's, it's a cycle of nature in a way. The cat is programmed to, mm. to hunt birds and uh, the moon, obviously, the, the cycle of the moon and the links to the, yes. the natural world. Does and does the cat know? Does the cat does Minolouch know that his pupils will pass from change to change? Yeah. And does Minolouch care? He's got more important things on his mind, creeping through the grass mm. alone, important, wise, looking up at the moon, but not trying to think through the significance of it. He can leave that to poets. Yes. He's clearly related to Rudyard Kipling's The Cat Who Walks By Himself. Mm, yeah. Places um, are alike. Yeah, him, all yeah. places are alike to him. Mm. He walks through the wild wet woods, waving his wild tail yes. and walking on his wild loan. Yeah. And that famous illustration that Kipling did, the Indian ink illustration yes. of the cat wandering uh, down through that grove of trees. Uh, into the wild wet woods yeah talking of uh, wisdom as well the wisdom of the cat the wisdom of the poet I think it was Robertson Davis who said that uh, authors like cats because they're such quiet lovable wise creatures and cats like authors for the same reason (laughs) that's a a good point and I mean sticking with Ireland I mean there's uh, we we can go back um, long long before Yeats can't we to uh, to a, a monk and his cat a scribe, so we're, we're sticking with writers and cats. And the remarkable poem Pangaban, Carol, I think you've uh, you've brought that along. Yes, um, Pangaban is a, a poem by a ninth-century Irish monk, and it's been translated by various authors, including Seamus Heaney. Um, and it's interesting to think about what each poet brings out of the poem. Um, I'm not going to read it all, but I can read a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Pangaban and I at work, adepts equals cat and clerk. His whole instinct is to hunt, mine to free the meaning pent. And you've got the idea here of the scholar trying to find meaning from uh, manuscripts, from scholarship, and the cat trying to catch a mouse so that you've got both those activities going on in harmony with each other. And so the poem balances this idea of the scholar and, and the cat together. Um, there's an I and he all the way through. Mm. And because it's written in a trochaic tetrameter with a catalectic ending where you've lost the last week's stress, I think that really brings out the action of pouncing or leaping of the cat. Yeah. So it sort of starts from a strong stress onto another one, if you like. So the action of the cat is, is within the the metrical uh, choices of the poem as well. Yes, and you've got the, the couplets as well. And yes. the, the idea of the, reinforcing the idea of they're equals, they're kind of like a team, you know. That, yeah. Just as the, the, the monk goes in, is, is hunting for, for meaning, for truth and so on. Yes. The cat is hunting, as you say, for, for mice. And in shoots. another um, translation by um, Robin Flower, you've got the words, hunting mice is his delight, Hunting words, I sit all night, which mm. I think is a really good image of the hunting that's done by both. Yes, and not together not, in yeah. parallel. Yeah.
and the nocturnal idea, you know, kind of, uh, you know, mm. I think there's a word for it, lucubration, you know, kind of working by candlelight. You know, yes, basically. it's a great word. Yes. You know about words, don't you? Uh, <laughs> That's only the second time I've ever heard that word used, and the other is in Henry James's The, the Figure in the Carpet. Ah, yeah. something yeah. is described, a magazine is described as the organ of our lucubrations. Mm. You've said it <laughs> in ordinary colloquial speech. Can resurrect that word, there we are. Yes. Let's let's bring back lucibration mm. and do follow Elber English on Twitter for more words of the day. Get a get a quick plug in for that. <laughs> um, there's a, there's another great cat word which um, is um, gallianthropy, which is um, the um, the belief that you've uh, turned into a cat as a human. So we have to look out for cat-like um, sort of propensities in our colleagues, will we? And whether, how they relate to the moon as yes. well, following AIDS. Well, going back to Pangaban as well, this is this idea of the round, bright eye fixing on the wall, and so the cat's described in that way, and you've got that sort of idea of the eyes being so important to a cat in terms yeah. of hunting, and also it almost becomes like a shorthand image for the cat, doesn't it? This focus on its prey. Especially at night, when the eyes are the things oh, yes. that you can, yeah, you're drawn this, by the light of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. This recurrent fascination with, with cat's eyes changing, shifting, reflecting the light... Um, the cat sign was the inspiring a road safety device. The French poet Charles Baudelaire, cat's eyes held a different significance. And this is just a little bit from one of his prose poems called The Clock, in which he makes a claim. I've no idea whether this is true, um, but he claims that the Chinese read the time in the eyes of cats. And uh, it gives an anecdote. One day a missionary walking through the suburbs of Nanking found he had forgotten his watch and asked a small boy what time it was. The urchin of the Celestial Empire hesitated a moment, and then a thought struck him, and he replied, I'll tell you in a moment. He reappeared with a big fat cat in his arms, and looking, so to speak, point-blank into its eyes, announced without hesitation, it's not yet noon. <laughs> Which was quite correct. <laughs> Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So not, not not so much uh, watchdog as clock cat. Clock cat. You might say, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not going to catch on, is it? Carrying one around. No, no, no. It's a good excuse though to go and uh, you know go up to stray cats in the street mm. and uh, give, give them a stroke. And, uh, mm. Just telling the time. Yeah. yeah, I like particularly. It's a big fat cat that this urchin lifts yeah. up, mm. peers into it, into its face. I've got one like that. She's very fat. She's called Delia, and um, she's plush like velvet. She's so fat. I don't think she can make many pouncing movements. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is she as uh, as big as uh, Charlie the library cat? There? Is, um, is a... any cat as big as Charlie <laughs> well, the library cat? Um, this has been great talking about uh, cats and poetry. I think we could... Uh, bring in many, many more, so uh, who knows, maybe it's something to uh, resurrect at some point on a future podcast. Um, Jean Burden, the uh, 20th century American poet, said, um, a dog, I have always said, is prose, a cat is a poem. Absolutely, that's a great uh, statement. Well, from cat poems into some doggerel, I think. Um, it's time for our regular segment, the uh, So Bad It's Good section, all about the poetry that's just uh, so awful. It's actually quite enjoyable to read and to share. And we've all got some uh, good, bad poems, we might say, that we want to share this week. Um, who's going to start? Who's going to kick us off with some doggerel? Well, 
Well, I've got a dog poem. <laughs> well, perfect, that might, Carol. That might work well with it. Um, I'd just like to say, though, that where what I think bad poetry is, and I realise I'm quite biased on this subject, is free verse. Mm. So I know I might be very contentious by saying that, but anything that doesn't rhyme and doesn't have meter, you know, is that... Is that good poetry? Anyway, i just put that out there for you, and if anyone wants to take me up on that, they're quite welcome to. Um, so my poem. As a cat lover, obviously, I have to attack dog owners, so I'm just going to read this now. My doggy pees on all the trees and poops on all the flowers. He does no tricks like fetching sticks, just licks himself for hours. It's <laughs> right, uh, even shorter and more to the point than uh, Dickinson's evocation of the cat. Absolutely, and at least it rhymes. That's a good mm. thing, isn't it? And that—that's called my doggy, isn't my it? My doggy, yes. And it's by uh, David Scott Marley. David Scott Marley, excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, some literally some uh, doggerel there, but maybe not li- literally. Uh, <laughs> David Scott Marley and me. Oh, well, there we are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, wonderful. So we, we've kind of we're opening up to the whole animal kingdom now. But uh, uh, I've got a poem which um, uh, is actually from a, a collection called the Gallery of Pigeons and other poems. Pigeons been overlooked, I think, in the, the annals of uh, English verse. And there was a British composer, singer, and a poet called uh, Theo Marsials, um, who was uh, kind of Victorian into the early twentieth century. And uh, he wrote this one volume of poems called The Gallery of Pigeons, which was published in 1873. And it contains the wonderful poem, A Tragedy. And I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll just uh, regale you with the first stanza. Um, So this is a tragedy. Death. Plop. The barges down in the river. Flop. Flop. Plop. Above, beneath. (laughs) From the slimy branches, the grey drips drop. As they scraggle black on the thin grey sky, where the black cloud rack hackles drizzle and fly to the oozy waters that lounge and flop on the black scrag piles where the loose cords plop. (laughs) As the raw wind whines in the thin treetop, plop, plop. And scudding by, the boatmen call out, Hoy and hey, all is running water and sky, and my head shrieks, stop, and my heart shrieks, die. I could go on, but I think that's, uh, that's more than enough to uh, whet your appetite for more. So, what happens next? Where does it go? <laughs> what, what is the tragedy apart from the, the verse itself? Um, well, well, there's a lot more flopping and plopping, and a lot more death coming up, but... Um, Quite what it uh, what it means. Uh, it's it's actually in in some ways quite modern in that respect, and that he leaves out a lot of the uh, the kind of commentary on what's going on. So, what is the tragedy? Remains something of a mystery. Mm. You but, can see his background in music hall songwriting. I mean, those kind of <laughs> contrived rhymes and internal rhymes in some of the lines. Yes, I and mean, it's it's quite fun to read out actually mm-hmm. with all those uh, places, all the yeah. heat and the flop. And, uh, yeah, very much the, the era of, of popular reciting. You give people a poem, either in the music hall or sometimes at a family gathering. Uh, it lends itself to that, yeah. kind of, uh, that kind of dramatic 
recitation. Yes, and it is. It is. You know, although uh, yeah, he was a singer and a composer. That's very much a poem to be to be recited, isn't it? To, to enjoy. Yes. Yeah. I just want to read a, um, a, just a brief excerpt from another of his poems from the same volume. Um, sticking Only with. Only if it's as bad. Um, well, the Athenaeum certainly seem to think so when they reviewed this volume. Um, and this is bringing in another animal, actually. This is the trout. This, uh, a much longer poem, but this is uh, just five lines from it. All is a grey, and the sky is in a glimmer. A glimmer as ever a sky should be. Silvery grey with a silvery shimmer, where shimmers the sun in the hazes a shimmer. The shimmer of river. Ah, river a shimmer. And the Athenaeum, when they reviewed this, said, we must say that the repetition of the same word five times in three lines shows a certain want of familiarity with the language in which he writes. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> that's uh, burn, I think, is the word, isn't it? That's, yeah. uh, that's, got, to, uh, that's got to sting a bit. But, uh, so, um, yeah, we've moved on from dogs to uh, pigeons and to trouts, but uh, what other... Good, bad poems have we got? We can now have wasps. Ah, yes, we haven't covered insects. Or or a wasp, um, the the wonders of arthropod-themed poetry. (laughs) This is a poem by uh, the Scottish poet John Davidson, and it's rather unfair to include him in a a bad poetry section because in the 1890s and early 1900s, Davidson was very popular and quite successful, and uh, he was even in with an outside chance of becoming Poet Laureate. But things took a bad turn uh, in the final years of the first decade of the 20th century. Davidson became obsessed with the relationship between prose and poetry, and he began to write prose and then chop it uh, into lines of um, mm. poetic length. I think Carol will have something to say I about will. it. <laughs> so it's a, kind, it's a kind of blank verse, which isn't proper blank verse. It was called by its critics Davidsonese. And in this poem, The Wasp, Davidson manages to do Davidsonese in a kind of mock 18th century description of a wasp trapped in a railway compartment or a train compartment. (laughs) Um, Yeah, words fail me. Here it is. (laughs) The Wasp. Once as I went by rail to Epping Street, both windows being open, a wasp flew in. Through the compartment swung, almost out... Scarce seen, scarce heard, but dead against the pain entitled smoking, did the train's career arrest her passage. Such a wonderful (laughs) impervious transparency before that palpitating movement had never yet her airy voyage thwarted. So she's flown into a window. (laughs) Undismayed, with diligence incomparable, she sought an exit till the letters like a snare entangled her, or else the frosted glass and signature indelible appeared the key to all the mystery. There she groped and flirted petulant wings and fiercely sang a counterspell against the sorcery, the sheer enchantment that inhibited her access to the world. Her birthright. So visible and so beyond her reach. Baffled and raging like a tragic queen, she left at last the stenciled tablet, roamed the pane a while to cool her regal ire, then tentatively touched the window frame, sure-footing still, though rougher than the glass, dissimilar in texture and so obscure. Now that is mm. a tragedy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary. It's oddly it? gripping, though, in its way, <laughs> you know, because it's such a kind of you know, a, a small and rather unpoetic premise 
Yes, and and brought to us in such grand language. Yeah. Um, there is certainly a kind of uh, you know Alexander Pope yeah, kind so of you know, yeah. mock heroic. Yeah. Such a wonderful impervious transparency before that palpitating moment had never her airy voyage thwarted. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Grandiloquent, isn't it? Yeah. It is, but I, but I think written entirely seriously. Mm. I don't think there's a problem. Well, I think that's it. it. Yeah, I think a lot of the best good bad verse it needs to be uh, offered with a, a straight face. I think with a you know with a, in a very very po-faced manner by the poet yes. and I mentioned last time I think the, 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 the anthology of anthologies for, for bad poetry in English The Stuffed Owl which came out in 1930 and um, in the introduction to that D.B. Wyndham Lewis uh, who was the co-editor he, he says that's one of the uh, prerequisites for a, a good bad poem I think the, the poet needs, the, you know, needs to be completely unaware of just how, how awful it really is um, so a tragedy, um, I think Marzials, you know, did offer that seriously as a tragedy, but it's instead a, a, a terrible, terrible comedy, <laughs> unexpected yeah. comedy. Yeah. Plop and flop as a reiterated rhyme. Yeah. It lacks tragic grandeur. <laughs> <laughs> Not the only thing it lacks. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so do send us your suggestions for good, bad poems that we, you think we should feature in a future podcast. Um, and you can send those to at Elborough English on Twitter. So we look forward to your suggestions. Our next section is uh, a new segment that we're going to call One from the Vaults, where we resurrect a poet who is um, not quite as famous as we think they should be and uh, deserves to be better known. And uh, this week, Nick, you've um, suggested Arthur Simmons. Thank you. Why should he be brought up from the vaults? Tell us a bit about Simmons. Arthur Simmons is a poet who is currently in a state of obscurity outside a small... uh, collection of late Victorian and modernist scholars. Simmons doesn't have an entry in the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, and unlike a lot of writers who were probably less influential and important than himself, he's never had a greatest hit. He's never produced one text or one title or one line that everybody seems to know, even Mm. if they don't necessarily know where it came from. But he was a a very interesting figure in the, the late 18... Um, 1890s through into the 1900s but his career was completely wrecked by a serious nervous breakdown in 1908 and although he lived to 1945 uh, he never really recovered he continued to publish work but it was widely felt that it was not as good as what he produced um, earlier in his career so Simmons was born in 1865 and really came to prominence uh, in the 1890s Uh, when he moved from uh, the provinces uh, to London. He'd moved around. His father was a Methodist preacher, and he moved around the country a lot. And so he'd lived in Cornwall. He was born in uh, Pembrokeshire. He'd also lived in Nuneaton, uh, in Buckingham, uh, in Chester, uh, in Coventry. So they'd moved around. Every couple of years, his father was uh, redeployed to a new parish, so the the family got up and moved with him. Mm. But in the early 1890s, he moved full-time to London to become a professional writer. And over the next decade or so, before he he got married, he lived a kind of bachelor-about-town life. Um, He lived right in central London, just off 
just off the Strand, uh, up to where, where uh, Aldwych now is. He frequented the music halls of Leicester Square. He frequented the publishers' offices uh, in that in that area of, of uh, London, and he made influential friends on both sides of the Channel. Uh, Simmons would not have voted in the the referendum about Brexit because he considered politics to be below him. But mm. he's certainly certainly a Remainer with very very passionate pro-European connections, fluent in French, Italian, and Spanish spending a lot of time on the continent, friends with major figures of the day, the sculptor Rodin, the poets uh, Malamé and Verlaine, um, the Italian poet Gabriel D'Annunzio, and a whole host of others. So he had an extraordinarily mm. impressive contact book. Mm. And in the UK, he was, he was friends with everybody from Walter Pater to uh, W.B. Yeats, who we already heard from. In fact, Simmons and Yeats were flatmates of a kind, uh, in the mid 1890s, mm. there's a sitcom waiting to be written there. Yeah. Not probably not a very fun one. <laughs> uh, although there is a story of Yates not knowing how to make toast, which intrigues me. He had to toast, and he knew what bread was, but he didn't know how one was transformed into the other. So uh, Simmons um, was determined to produce a new form of poetry, which was uh, influenced by music and by impressionist painting which dealt with all kinds of different subject matter that poetry had traditionally tended to avoid in its more respectable incarnations. So he was writing poetry about uh, eroticism, about sexual encounters, about prostitution and casual amours. Um, this probably hasn't helped his reputation. He's seen as a bit of a kind of lascivious um, figure. A recent piece on him in the Times Literary Supplement even called him creepy, I'm going to defend it. Maybe I'm creepy too. Uh, I don't think he's genuinely creepy, but his attitudes, his sexual attitudes, were deeply conflicted. Mm. So he's a very interesting figure. He was very prolific. Uh, he wrote poetry. He wrote criticism. He wrote essays on a wide variety of topics. He wrote about music. He wrote about visual art. Um, he wrote about travel. Uh, he wrote about the experience of theatre going. So he was a really very rounded, very interesting figure. But dying when he did, just as modernism was really... Uh, well, not dying, but having his breakdown when he did and creatively dying, uh, just as modernism was um, getting started, he sort of got left behind and forgotten, mm -hmm. rather slighted by T.S. Eliot in a book called The Sacred Wood, and his influence obscured both by time and by his habit of kind of rewriting and reprinting things uh, that weren't as good as they'd been first time around. Mm. And the modernists had a habit of doing that, didn't they? Kind of writing certain people out of uh, literary history and mm. claiming discoveries for themselves. And of yeah. course, Eliot's an interesting case because it was reading Simmons on symbolism, wasn't it, that opened Eliot's mm. eyes that to the world. alerted him to a whole series of uh, avant-garde French writers, like yeah. Corbiere and Lafour. So, yeah, he was the link there, a crucial link for, for Eliot. Yeah, yeah. So Eliot wasn't wholly fair to Simmons, and perhaps posterity hasn't been wholly fair to him either. Mm. When the first biography of him came out in the 1960s, Philip Toynbee and The Observer said, well, why do we want to read this? What, what's the point of this book? Who cares, really? Philip Toynbee, wherever you are now, I care. I'll show you why I care. I'm going to read a, a very brief poem uh, from Simmons, or relatively brief poem. This is from his first book, Days and Nights, uh, his first book of poems, which came out in 18... 
89. I think there is a strong proto-Eliot uh, element of this. It's not wholly out of place, I think, in Eliot's Proofrock mm. and other observations. It's a poem called Episode of a Night of May. The coloured lanterns lit the trees, the grass, the little tables underneath the trees, and the rays dappled like a delicate breeze each wine-illumined glass. The pink light flickered, and a shadow ran along the ground as couples came and went. The waltzing fiddles sounded from the tent, and giroflée began. They sauntered arm in arm, these two. The smiles grew chilly, as the best spring evenings do. The words were warmer, but the words came few, and pauses fell at whiles. But she yawned, prettily. Come then, said he, they found a chair, Verve Clicquot, some cigars. They emptied glasses and admired the stars, the lanterns, night, the sea, nature, the newest opera, the dog, so clever, who could shoulder arms and dance. He mentioned Alphonse Daudet's last romance, last Sunday's river fog, love, immortality. The talk ran down to these mere lees. They wearied each of each, and tortured on we into hollow speech, and yawned to hide a frown. She jarred his nerves, he bored her, and so soon. Both were polite, and neither cared to say the word that mars a perfect night of May. They watched the waning moon. So, a poem which captures this sense of frustration and disappointment. It all got off to such a good start, mm-hmm. but in the end it fizzled out into empty wine glasses, loneliness, disappointment and disconnection. In a sense, strangely prophetic of the way that Simmons' own life would develop. Mm. Yeah, and I think you're right, there are lots of kind of you know, proto-proofrockian touches there, let's say, you know. Each to each, I think there was the phrase in there, and that's like the mermaid singing each to each at the end of Proof Rock, and, mm-hmm. and the talk kind of winding, winding down, down as well. Love, immortality, the talk ran down to these mere leaves. Yeah. Leaves yeah. being the kind of grot at the bottom of a wine bottle. Mm. It's and, interesting because the perspective changes, doesn't it? So I don't, I challenge anyone to yawn prettily. That's... Oh, you do, Carol. <laughs> Usually while I've been talking. <laughs> but I, I think you can put your hand over your mouth and flutter your eyes. But but it's all in the perspective of the beholder, isn't it? You know, and that's changed over the course mm. of this, so that her talk becomes mm. boring. Um, and uh, and in the the other image I really liked that I jotted down was wine illumined glass. You know, there's mm. that sort of rosy glow mm. over everything. Mm. So someone would yawn prettily in that description. Mm. Whereas by the end, there's this sort of ennui and disillusionment mm. that's grown into the whole mm. scene. So it is how you perceive it, isn't yes. it? Yes. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this is one of the first uses of ennui in an English. Poem. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I did a Twitter poll actually last week on the Elborough English, Loughborough English Twitter, asking what should be the theme of this podcast, and uh, cat poems won. Uh, 
quite uh, <laughs> quite comfortably. But ennui was one of the other That's subjects it. I threw out there as an extension. Well, maybe next time ennui and poetry will be. Even... Well, it would be something you could take or leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it wouldn't please everyone. No, no. <laughs> so uh, yes, Arthur Simmons. Thank you very much, Nick, for that introduction to Arthur Simmons' life and work. And um, it's interesting what you say about him not really having a kind of greatest hit as it were there's no text we can point to that has become famous or is, is taught widely in schools or is you know is, is well known um, but there's as that poem shows there are lots of interesting poems and indeed prose works as well that uh, people can go off and discover and they're, they're they are in print aren't they as well they, they are there's just been a new edition of his early poems uh, a new edition of some of his early fiction. Uh, in fact, it's his late fiction as well because he didn't write fiction for very long. Mm. And uh, YouTube is filled with links to settings of Simmons' lyrics. A mm. number of 20th century composers have put some of his words to music. So there is mm. quite a lot to explore. Oh, yeah. And uh, you're being modest here, but you are the editor of his spiritual adventures, some of his short stories. Uh, I am, yes. Mm. Uh, I was modest there. Um, <laughs> It's not available in all good bookshops, but uh, you can find it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there, there we are. That's um, our first author, our first poet to be uh, rescued from the vaults in uh, our new segment, One from the Vault. So thank you very much, Nick, for uh, introducing us to the world of Arthur Simmons. Well, our final segment in uh, this podcast is um, when we delve into the world of a local poet. And this week we've got... Um, a Leicestershire-born poet, um, a poet of the First World War, in fact. Um, he's not as famous as Wilfred Owen or Siegfried Sassoon or Isaac Rosenberg, um, but he did write some poems that were very, very popular at the time, um, both in Britain and in America, and his name is Arthur Newbury Choice, or A. Newbury Choice, as he sometimes published. Um, and he was born in 1893 in Hugglescut, not far from uh, where we are in Loughborough, near Colville, um, and um, after the war, he served in the uh, Le- Leicestershire Regiment. Um, he went on to uh, be a headmaster at the local school uh, in northwest Leicestershire. And I've chosen one of his poems from uh, a 1918 volume, uh, and this poem's called No Man's Land. The background for this poem is uh, a real event that, that happened to Choice uh, during the First World War. Um, having volunteered in the Leicestershire Regiment in 1914, um, as a private, but then he, they insisted that he'd be made a second lieutenant. He uh, underwent an experience um, during one of the conflicts um, in which he narrowly avoided being hit by a shell. Uh, a shell exploded very, very near to where he was leading his troops into, uh, into battle. And he had to hide in a shell hole um, for 24 hours until he was rescued. And this poem, No Man's Land, is about that experience. I crawled in a spirit-haunted place, made wild by many a screaming shell, and here and there a dead man's face lay like a livid track to hell. For night had spread the jagged lands with covering veil of sable skies, yet war still clenched his crimson hands and hunted me with gleaming eyes. I crawled in a spirit-haunted place, made wild by souls that moan and mourn, and death leered by with mangled face. Our God, I prayed, I prayed for dawn. So um, I crawled in a spirit-haunted place, 
um, about him taking cover in this shell hole uh, and awaiting rescue. It's a very, very vivid poem. I mean, it's it's not that far removed in a way from you know, Wilfred Owen's uh, very, very um, uh, detailed descriptions of life in the trenches and life, um, you know, uh, in no man's land, going over the top, facing the shells, facing the, the kind of the, the dead all around you. And that very vividly comes across, I think, in, uh, first of all, the dead man's face. And it, it, although it, it's the singular, you realise here and there a dead man's face. It's like they're lined up like a, a kind of road, uh, paving the way literally to hell. And we get kind of a almost uh, shades of um, strange meeting Owen's mm. poem you know, yeah, I, uh, I knew we were in hell but then death of course returns at the end uh, personified as the grim reaper death leered by with mangled face so um, this this kind of horror this, this attempt to kind of convey the visual experiences and the way that what he's seen haunts his memory the, the reference to spirits the reference to the dead you know, there's there's some very vivid sort of local details here. Crimson hands as well, the idea of the bloody hands and the gleaming eyes as well. In some ways, I mean, although it's a very, very different poem, um, it's that same attention to local detail that we got in Dickinson's cat poem. It's this kind of, it's breaking it down to these, you know, these, these mi- the minutiae, these, uh, these very, very vivid but very small details that have lodged in his mind. Um, the, the poem's quite well populated, if you think about it, because you've got war, death and night as abstract figures. Um, and that's very much an early modern or an 18th century trait, isn't it, to capitalise or personify these, these characters within it, and it gives it sort of a greater depth of horror, I think, because of that. Yeah, and we've also got, you know, uh, one half of the Four Horsemen as well, War and yes, Death. Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. But I was I was sort of looking at um, some in, in, some details about the Hohenzollern Redoubt, which he puts at the, the end of the, po- the poem. Yes. And it, it seems that while he was there at the end of 1915, over 3,000 British men were killed in a matter of minutes as they went over the top. And by 1816, it was just this huge no-man's-land of craters between the German... Um, emplacements and, and the British so you know th- that's the land he's capturing here and, and you need that horror, that sense of horror to convey um, how dreadful that experience must have been Exactly, it's personal but it's also as with a lot of his poems it's a, it, a lot of his poems are about the Leicestershires, the, the Tigers, the regiment you know, and about his men that he felt responsibility for, as Wilfred Owen did as well, you know so there's a it's 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 personal. It's what he's been through, but it's also, yeah, mapped onto the the, the, the kind of scale of uh, Hohenzollern, as you say, and the, the the destruction and the death. But he resists the urge to describe it in too much yes. specific detail. He's more at home with these kind of archetypal abstractions, mm, yeah, rather than as Owen might have done. Telling you, telling his audience how difficult it is to put on a gas mask. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's there's a hint of houseman lurking in it, a Shropshire lad. Those mm. quatrains, particularly that middle one with the sable sky mm. uh, and so on, that almost as if he's trying to adapt the poetry he grew up with and admired to a new locale and a new way of, of uh, trying to write about battle. So there's nothing. 
glorious or uh, exciting about this kind of warfare. Mm. Stuck in a hole for 24 hours. Yeah. You don't know who else is in it with you. People drowned in shell holes, drowned in the mud, mm. or found themselves in a hole with bits of bodies and bone and Lord knows what. Mm. Well, well, that's right. And what I, I think is interesting about it, it's got these romantic euphemistic images like sable skies um, instead of black and crimson instead of bloody. So mm. it's not specific in its detail. But then you've got this combination of more Owen-like modern imagery of the screaming shell or the Mm. moaning, the mourning, the mangled face. So it's you've got the modern technology of war as well as these archetypal romantic images as well. Yeah, and jagged lands as well. You know, thinking of the just you know the I mean, jagged lands is kind of you know metaphorical as well. You know, the idea of being plunged into chaos, everything ugly, and uh, the, the the beauty of the the landscape, the beauty of the, the countryside. and Torn uh, apart. Yeah, yeah, but also literally jagged because mm. of all the, you know, the technology, the, um, the, uh, um, the kind of hastily um, uh, erected buildings and kind of, you know, um, storage areas as well and things like that. Well, and the guns, the gun emplacements too, I suppose. Yeah, the, the gun, yeah, jutting up, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, he... Uh, he wrote this um, poem, published it in 1918, and um, he was asked to tour America because his poems were in a way more popular with uh, people during the First World War than people like Owen. He only really tended to get his uh, recognition afterwards, and few of them were, were published um, before his death. So, um, uh, you know, Choice is writing these, publishing them. They are speaking to people back home, and there's a lot about back home as well in his poetry. You know, he writes about the Charnwood Hills. He writes about longing for the. So there's a kind of there's a wistful kind of houseman um, tone as well. Land of lost content. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he's kind of a Leicestershire lad, if you will, in that respect. And he's uh, and it is tied to the Midlands. You know, there are lots of references to Midland. Uh, you know, the, the the Midlands as a as a distinct space that he remembers, he recalls. Unlike. Sassoon or Owen or even uh, Robert Graves towards mm. the end of the war he seems to be resisting any criticism of those who started or continued the war he's dramatising a single traumatic moment against this backdrop of chaos yes. uh, but he isn't pointing the finger this is a very different kind of poetry from say Sassoon's The General mm. um, for instance where there is somebody who's responsible for sending people to their deaths yeah, so I think that's why you know he was uh, kind of um, he was asked to go to America because they wanted to kind of use him as a recruitment tool in a way to uh, encourage the Americans to get involved towards the end of the First World War. But you know, a poem like this does highlight you know the realities of it as well. He's not uh, he's not you know kind of uh, sugarcoating it. He's not offering this idyllic idea of war and you know linking it to patriotism and things like that. But there is a stoicism there, I think, and a refusal to, you know, as you say, point the finger. Yes, it's hard to see what his take is on war, really, because he doesn't criticise those in high places, particularly, does he? He's he's trying to say that we have to make the best of this, and he doesn't want to let down his men, I think, by, you know, making them feel that their deaths are a a sacrifice that's unnecessary. No, no. But then the religious element there, I prayed, I prayed for dawn. There's nothing you can do in this situation, and that repetition of prayed twice is is you know that's the only way out really is to, for the morning to come and for the 
the shooting to be over, isn't it? Yeah. Another day or another night. And I think maybe people found that oddly in a, in a weird way, although it's not a kind of you know, a comforting poem. Um, they found that comforting. I think there's a lot of you know religious imagery and references in his poetry. This this idea of finding consolation in God, which maybe for his original readers. Um, helped to to make his poetry uh, more popular with them. It, it was kind of more palatable, a more palatable way of uh, you know learning about what was going on at places like Hohenzollern. It's interesting as well. I mean, I, I mean when I mentioned the kind of you know, the, the details he gives of the hands, the eyes, the face, things like that, you know, it's it's kind of almost literally a kind of disembodiment, isn't it? As well, it's the, yeah. focusing on these parts rather than the whole you know there's a dead man it's dead man's face mm. and of course that's another reality of course with shells going off the idea that you know um, bodies will literally be um, you know blown apart so he's not he's not confronting that level of you know no. destruction and um, carnage but he's um, breaking down bodies people into these you know uh, constituent parts is um is interesting, and then allying them, as you say, with war and with death, with these kind of concepts. And it's interesting too that he gives us a, a location for the poem mm. underneath it. Mm. The Hohenzollern Redoubt didn't exist before the war. It's not an existing geographical feature or place right. which has mm. been destroyed, and it is a battlefield name uh, for that particular. Um, part of the uh, of the fight that's going on it's it's a thing a place which has been mm. created by the war uh, with no previous existence which yeah. adds to the no man's land effect mm. because yes if you'd looked on your map in 1914 it wouldn't have been there um yeah no man's land is it's it's an interesting um term actually i didn't know about this but i did a bit of research into it i was uh looking at this poem and I thought well you know where did no man's land come from apparently it's, it's a very old term it used to be ref- used to refer to um, the land beyond the city of London or other cities you know mm. kind of wasn't claimed by anyone um, but then it was only applied in the first world war to the um, the, the, the space between you know the, the, the you know you and the enemy as it were um, when uh, Ernest Swinton, a British army officer, used it in a short story, so it's actually kind of a literary use. And then it, it, originally, people just talked about between the lines, and then it became no man's land. This kind of more poetic and rather kind of you know despairing and uh, you know almost nihilistic kind of name for it. You know? Yeah, because it implies that no man should be in this land at the same time as saying it's a land yeah, between neutral, two yeah. So. He, and Ernest Swinton actually he also was the one who um, gave us the name for tanks as well He were, when they were developed they didn't want Winston Churchill didn't want um, people to know what they were for these new armed, armoured vehicles so he, he, you know, they, they, there was this front you know, developed which was oh they're going to be used as water carriers, water carriers yes right. and um, uh, the story goes that Swinton suggested uh, water carriers, but Churchill didn't like it because it could be shortened to WC. You know, <laughs> so I did water closets, kind of so travelling. Winston on. Churchill, actually, if you think about it. Well, um, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, well, apparently he 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 poo pooed that when Swinton <laughs> suggested it. So Swinton go he went away and he said, well, "What about water tanks?" And then it just got shortened to tanks. So. Um, Yes, uh, but yeah, No Man's Land, I think, yeah, it, it kind of works on several levels as a title. We started with a poem that, uh, you know, written by a poet who didn't give her poems titles, but here we've got a title that in a way gives us the location, but then, as Nick, you said, you know, you get 
Hohenzollern read out at the end, so you get this more specific information about this encounter with you know, this brush with death that he's uh, he's had. Uh, and Choice also writes about um, journeying on the Arras Road as well, doesn't he? So I think place names in France get a significance for being at the front and that they're forever linked then indelibly, aren't they, in our memory to events that have taken place there. Exactly. It's a, it's, it's a way of um, learning about, I think, about these uh, the, um, the battles, the, the, the conflicts, the, um, the places, the various places in the First World War. Uh, and it was at Arras that um, Choice was wounded quite badly wounded in 1917 and um, he he obviously went to America after that and kind of uh, you know spoke about his war experiences was very popular over in the United States and then he became a headmaster uh, but he never really kind of recovered from the wounds that he'd uh, received in the the First World War Um, and he died quite young in 1937 but you know his poetry is is out there it can be uh, it is discoverable, um, and uh, yeah, I think he's a, a worthy voice, a worthy Leicestershire voice in the the the, the field, shall we say, of uh, great war poets, and uh, well worth looking at. Well, thank you for joining us for our second episode of School of Poetry. Um, we hope you've enjoyed listening, and thank you very much for joining us uh, for this podcast, Carol and Nick. Okay. Um, uh, hopefully you'll join us again for a future episode I look forward to it we may have more cat poems, who knows <laughs> or, or more ennui should we, you know, <laughs> leading on from Simmons uh, don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter at Elborough English uh, and you can learn more about uh, the uh, work that goes on um, in the School of the Arts, English and Drama uh, in, in the, the field of poetry but uh, and remember to hit the subscribe button uh, if you like what you've heard. Give us a review and you can help us to climb the iTunes charts. So uh, that's it. Uh, until next time, uh, thank you very much for joining us and um, stay well versed. Mm-hmm.